Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather together to hear your words. We acknowledge our sin afresh. We know that we don't deserve to hear your word, but you are a God of extraordinary grace and mercy. So cleanse us and help us today that by your spirit, our hearts would burn within us and we would be those who long to surrender our lives and live for the Lord Jesus Christ alone in whose name we pray and for whose glory we ask. Amen. On May the 1st, 1851, the Great Exhibition opened in London. It was the initiative of Prince Albert. He was married to Queen Victoria, and it was the first in a series called The World Fair, an exhibition of culture and of industry popular throughout the 19th century. The aim was to show that Great Britain was a leader in the world in industrial adventure. The building was a glass edifice, the biggest the world had ever seen, three times the height of St. Paul's Cathedral. And inside were 100,000 exhibits stretching for 10 miles. On display was technology, scientific advance, moving machinery for cotton production, electric telegraphs, microscopes, pumps, air pumps, barometers, musical instruments, a Canadian fire engine, as guests marveled at the industrial, technological, and sculpture and fine arts of the empire from far and wide. It was a stunning success. Over six million people visited. That's a third of the population of England at the time. But here's the thing. Prince Albert's ultimate aim wasn't to praise Britannia, but actually God. And to make that point, he decided to put a verse on the entrance above the door as you headed in. And the verse he chose for the great exhibition is taken from our opening verse in Psalm 24, verse 1, this morning. As you walked into this extraordinary exhibition of the advances of the empire, of the goodness of creation, you read this verse, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The point about Psalm 24, verse 1, is that everything comes from God. It's a proclamation, if you like, to the gathered nations that everything in our world comes from God, our King. Psalm 24 was probably a celebratory song. It's a very clear and early presentation of the gospel. More than likely, it was sung as the ark arrived back into Jerusalem, as the covenant was restated in Jerusalem for the people. But it's a very clear picture of Christ. It's a, it's a Christological psalm sung as Israel rejoiced that their God was in their midst. It's a psalm that takes us to our doctrine of God, and we desperately need it. It falls into three sections. It's described in three stanzas, so much so that many commentators think this is actually three separate psalms, three mini-psalms which have been stuck together, but it isn't. 
because the psalmist knows what he's doing in these three separate sections, because each stanza builds on the other to bring us an incredible doctrine of God. And if we're going to listen this morning, we'll leave with our hearts rejoicing as we head into another week, determined to live and surrender all to our great God. It takes us to the holiness of God. The word holy in the Hebrew is the word kadesh. And the word kadesh really means set apart. God is holy in the sense that he is set apart from us. He's other than the creation and all that is in it. And as you think about kadesh or set apart or holiness, there are, there are two ways in which God is different to everything else in his world. He's different to us in his power, and he's different to us in his purity. And this psalm celebrates the holiness, the Kadesh of God in his perfect power and perfect purity. Three stanzas, here's the first. For this God is powerful in creation. Verse one, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. This is an incredible verse because the Lord here is Yahweh, the King of Israel. And Israel at the time was really a nation pretty much the size of New Jersey. Imagine if tomorrow morning the governor of New Jersey was to get up and was to say, I am the king of the world. We'd mock that, wouldn't we, from New Jersey. We'd say, what about China? Uh, what about Russia and Putin over in the east? It was the same for Israel. There were superpowers, the G8 of the day, the Egyptians or the Assyrians. For this God to declare that he's king of the world is an audacious assertion. Yet it's an assertion that just builds not only is the declaration that he's king of the world, but second, king of all in it, the fullness thereof. The point is that the world that God rules over isn't some arid planet, some scorched earth, a desolate planet miles away, like a moonscape, like Jupiter. No, the picture is of an earth in all of its fullness or abundance or bounty. And this takes us to the goodness of God. Because the world that he made in Genesis 1 verse 31 is good. Not only did he make it, but he filled it. And in Genesis 1, the picture is of a world bursting with fullness and life, a gorgeous garden, a beautiful planet, a stunning home, teeming with color, bursting with life and beauty, a fantastic, perfect paradise place to occupy. I don't think there is a more sweeping statement of God's ownership over the world than this verse one, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, its harvests and its wealth, its life, its worship, his ownership over the whole of creation and of the whole of humanity. So later on today, as you open your refrigerator door, I don't know what you're going to find inside, 
But as you open your refrigerator door and then you find in there the oranges from California or the, the mange too from Brazil, the kiwis from, I don't know where they've come from, the uh, mango from Burma or the melon from South Africa, um, think about God's providential, good, gracious provision. He's given it to you. And in the old days during the offering, uh, we would used to sing, the organ would play, and we might sing, uh, all things come from thee, O Lord, and from uh, your own have we given thee. And certainly in the UK, in late September, early October, we would always have a harvest service. We've stopped doing that now because we are practical atheists. But the aim of the harvest service was to give thanks to God for the provision of the harvest. In fact, uh, there was a service in the Book of Common Prayer called Rogation Sunday when you would pray for the harvest. So you'd pray for a good harvest from God's hand, and then at Harvest Sunday you'd thank Him for it, and you would decorate the church with potatoes and oranges and flowers and carrots on the windowsills of the churches, and then we would sing the great harvest hymn. Nancy would pound it out to the organ or something like that, and we'd sing, for the fruits of His creation, thanks be to God. For His gifts to every nation, thanks be to God. For the plowing, sowing, reaping, silent growth while we were sleeping, future needs in earth's safekeeping, thanks be to God. Get out your map or spin the globe. He rules over all five continents. There isn't a single nation or people group or place that doesn't belong to God. He rules it. The kids' song gets it right. He's got the whole world in his hands. He made us. He provides. He rules. He sustains. And he founded the seas and then founded the earth upon the seas. Actually, verse 3 is an extraordinary statement of God's rule. His creation is stable, enduring, unshakable. He founded it upon the seas. The Hebrew probably is, he founded it over and above the seas. It's a reference back to Genesis 1. But in the ancient world and for the Jews, the seas stand for primeval chaos. The sea denotes a, a restless evil. And this is our world, isn't it? As the seas rise with constant evil, pounding against the kingdom of God. And we wonder sometimes whether God's kingdom can survive and be sustained against the relentless pounding and surging forces of evil and of Satan. This is a great verse about his providential power and protection. Verse 3, he has founded the earth up over the seas. For this is the God with complete authority over the earth, over all of its contents, over all of its inhabitants, over evil within our world. The creation then is dependent on God. Were He to withdraw His permission, it would fold up and be burned up instantly. Psalm 24, the urgent corrective our culture needs. And here's why. In his book, which I actually believe to be one of the most important books written in the last 50 years of Christendom, in the West at least, Carl Truman, who's based up in Pittsburgh, 
describes in his book the rise and triumph of the modern self, how our culture and the church within the West has abandoned what he calls transcendent frame for imminent frame. What he means by that is to say that we've turned away from the God who is transcendent and over us, and we've turned in on ourselves and our felt needs. We've completely forgotten about the God who is holy, transcendent, and powerful. We don't think of God like that anymore. We've reduced God to our felt needs. We've turned God from the almighty to the almighty. And Jesus is just our buddy, our boyfriend, our psychologist, our social worker. He's there to serve me, but I'm no longer there to serve him. You see this in the kind of sermons that are preached in churches. You see it in the kind of books that we choose to read. And very often in churches, you see it in the kind of songs we sing. And that's one of the reasons, actually, we've had a look at some of our songs, because we want to make sure that our songs reflect the gospel of the God who is transcendent in power as the songs that we sing reflect the gospel. The transcendent frame is the truth about God. Imminent frame, if we're honest, is an expression of our sin. It's not that God revolves around me. I am to revolve around God. David Wells puts it like this. It's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. Those who assure the pulses of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence or influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. This is weightlessness. Psalm 24 verse 1 will be a really good screensaver verse if you're thinking of uh, putting a new screensaver on or a verse for your refrigerator door. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then just as we're getting our head around that, this God perfect in power within creation, something really weird happens in our psalm as suddenly and without warning we, we switch to the second stanza, which doesn't seem connected at all. So commentators think we now move to a, another psalm altogether, but we don't because verse 3 to 5 now moves us from the God who is holy in power to the God who is holy in purity as it opens with an urgent question, and I'm not sure how you're going to answer it. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Well, this last week I was reading about the White House. I'm not sure why I was doing that, but I was trying to find out more about the country I'm now living in, and it's effectively impregnable. You can't get in. There's an iron fence around it, bulletproof resistant windows. There are perimeters of protection, as they're called, 
infrared sensors, snipers on the roof. They are the best, apparently, in the world. And then on top of that, there are 3,200 Secret Service agents and 1,300 uniformed agents who guard the Treasury and the White House and other buildings in Washington 24-7. To get in, there has to be biometric checks, passport checks, background checks. You can't get in to the White House unless you clear screening. And it is the most detailed and thorough screening in the world. Well, how do we get into God's presence? How are you planning on getting into heaven? Because this God is perfect in power and judgments and perfect in purity. And the terms and conditions of entry into the presence of God is that you have to be perfection. Perfection in thought, perfection in word, and perfection in deed. The question is, who? Who can climb God's hill and stand in his presence? If you go to Jerusalem, you'll know that it does indeed involve a climb and a big one. You've got to climb Mount Moriah and then the Holy Hill, which is Mount Zion, outside Jerusalem, 2,533 feet up. You enter through the south or the east, and there's a steep incline leading to it. It overlooks the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives. And it's a very steep climb, but the steepness of the physical climb is a metaphor or a picture of the steepness, if not the utter impossibility of the moral climb to get to God and stand in his presence, you have to be walking, talking, living, breathing perfection. There's a fourfold qualification in verse four. You need to have clean hands, outward purity in all of your actions. We've seen something of clean hands in the COVID pandemic as we've all been washing our hands, but the clean hands here in verse 4 mean that in all of the things that you have ever done, it has always been outward perfection. Second, you're going to need a pure heart. That is, in everything we think, in every motive and dream and ambition, purity. Third, we're going to need a devoted soul, not lifting up our soul to an idol. The soul here is the essence of who we are in our very DNA and fabric. The devoted soul means a loyalty, a, a wholeheartedness, a, a, a 100% devotion to God and to God alone, not turning to what is false, never turning to the idols. And fourth, Honest lips, because of course, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Honest lips. Each of these are like beads on a necklace. Each leads to the other. Clean hands flow from a pure heart, and a pure heart flows from a wholehearted loyalty to God. And this wholehearted loyalty to God will mean that we always speak what is true of him and true for him. So how are you feeling now? How are you 
feeling now about the climb to heaven. Hands, have you ever done anything wrong? Heart, have you ever felt angry, bitter, jealous? Soul, have you ever put yourself first or wanted something other than the gospel or lived for something other than Christ alone? And lips, have you ever told a lie? And what God demands is not 51.1% on the score or the scales kind of just about working out. He demands 100% walking, talking, living, breathing perfection 24-7 every nanoseconds of your life. And therefore, we've got to be honest with God and with ourselves that my hands are dirty and my tongue is deceitful and my soul is compromised and my heart is dark and therefore I can't climb to God, I'm unfit for the presence of God and therefore I deserve the eternal judgments of God in the eternal never-ending torments of hell forever. That's what Tony Jones, your pastor, deserves. What about you? This is crushing. This is intolerable. And therefore, what we need is a king, a perfect king to keep this law for us. But the verdict of God on humanity is frank. It comes in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven at the children of men to see if there's any who understand, any who seek after God. No, all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Paul, quoting Psalm 14 in Romans 3, says the same. There is no one righteous. Don't kid yourself. Not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their feet are swift to shed bloods. Ruin and misery mark their ways. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The God then who is far above us in transcendent power and blazing purity is the God who demands perfection at Mount Sinai as that mountain shook and as the lightning descended with the clouds. The warning was you can't approach God. It is too dangerous. His power is awesome. His purity is overwhelming. Like the sun, we can't bear to look at it. It's dangerous. To approach God, we deserve his judgment forever. But what we need is a king. What we need is a king who can keep the law for us and who can then give us his righteousness. And the key to this psalm is actually realizing that the person who's writing it is not an ordinary person. 
It's a Psalm verse 24 of David, the king. He's probably reflecting on Deuteronomy 17 verse 18, where the duty of the king is set out. Listen to this. When he, the king, sits on the throne of the kingdom, he will write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. And this book is to be with him, and he will read it all the days of his life that he will learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and all the statutes in doing them. Because in Joshua 1 verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You will meditate it day and night and be careful to do it according to all that is written in it. Now, I want you to make sure that your Bible is opened at Psalm 15 because I want to show you something very exciting as to how the editor of the Psalms puts this together. If you can just bear with this, you'll see what's going on. And it's very exciting because Psalm 15 to Psalm 24 is a group of psalms. And if you look carefully at the opening of Psalm 15 and the opening of Psalm 24, it's the same opening. Effectively, who shall stand in the presence of God? Who will ascend the hill of God and who will stand in the presence of God? Who can? That's the question of Psalm 15 and of verse 24. Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 are asking the question, who can go up to God and dare to stand before God? And slap bang in the middle of Psalm 15 to 24, like a mountain peak, is Psalm 19, which we looked at last week, which kind of peaks out of the clouds, right in the middle, because here's the point, to stand in the presence of God, to approach his presence and be safe with him forever, We have to be someone who obeys Psalm 19, the law of the Lord, with perfection. David the king is realizing that to be the king for Israel, to stand in the presence of God and represent the people to God and God to the people, he has to be a king who perfectly keeps the law of Psalm 19, a living, breathing walking, talking king of perfection. But if you go to Jerusalem, you can actually stand on a balcony, I've done this, overlooking a valley, and they'll point out to you it was here that David stood as he saw Bathsheba on the roof, the beginning of the ends. As he stood right here, it's extraordinary, at the flat roofs, it was here he stood as he saw her, the beginning of the end, because the affair led to the conspiracy, which led to the murder, which led to the cover-up, which led to the judgment, which led to the ends, which led to the end of David's reign. So just as we're getting our head then around this second idea, perfect in purity, perfect in power, as we get our head around this need for a, for a king to represent us, a king who can be walking, talking, living, breathing perfection, we need a king who can perfectly keep Psalm 19 as well. Trying to get our head around that, all of a sudden something incredibly exciting and dramatic happens in our psalm. As we now move to our third stanza, 
And if I was a Steven Spielberg, I'd want to make sure that we really understood the drama of this. As the camera one now moves from David the king, trying to get his head around this need for perfection, and we cut scene to camera two as another king approaches Jerusalem and ascends the hill. The third stanza is about another king, verse seven, a king of glory who over in camera two appears to be climbing and marching up triumphantly. It's our final stanza, a victorious king, triumphant in battle. A few weeks ago, I had to go to London to deal with some closing up business over there, and I I took uh, Sam, our second child, and we were in the middle of London, right where I used to work. And I took him to a place called Temple Bar. And we stood in the middle of the road. It was slightly dangerous, as I explained. There was a picture of Queen Victoria and her carriage going into London. And I explained what Temple Bar was all about. Here is what it's all about. The city of London is a bit like DC. It's its own city. In fact, London is two cities, the city of Westminster and the city of London. The Queen lives in the city of Westminster, and the city of London is a self-governing entity. And it is still the case today that the Queen of England is not allowed to enter into the city of London without the permission of the Lord Mayor. And so there's a ceremony that takes place at Temple Bar. Temple Bar is the bar that stops the Queen from coming in. And so it's called the Ceremony of the Pearl Sword, And as the Queen sweeps down what's called Fleet Street, uh, heading towards St. Paul's Cathedral, she is stopped. And the herald says, halt, who goes there? The herald then answers, the Queen of England. At which point the gate is opened and the Queen passes, but only after she is presented with the hilt of the city's pearl sword, and she touches it, an acknowledgement of the power and sovereignty of the Lord Mayor, and then she is allowed to pass. Now, something like this is happening in our psalm in verse 7. There's a king or somebody approaching the city, and all of a sudden there's a shout, if you look, in verse 7, as the royal escort party heralding in this king order the city of Jerusalem, to open its gates to the king. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. There's a stunned silence within Jerusalem, a pause, and a perplexed voice inside the wall, probably one of the sentries from the garrison, as he shouts down from the ramparts, who, verse 8 is this king of glory. The equerry to the king shouts back, the Lord's strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. And then the royal escort party marching in with the king shout out the word of command again. Lift up your heads, O gates. Rise up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The captain of the guard now is very confused. He himself goes up to the ramparts and shouts down this fundamental question, who is he, the king of glory? And the royal escort party shout back, armor glistening in the sunshine, the massed bands of the household division. Here's the answer, listen to this. 
the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The scene is one of joy. Lift up your heads. It means be joyful and expectant and confident. And here is a king sweeping into the fortified city of Jerusalem. But who is this king? And how on earth can he get into the presence of God? Here's the extraordinary answer. It is because the king who is approaching God is God. It is because the Lord who is approaching the Lord is, in fact, the Lord. This verse takes us to the Trinity. It takes us to Christology. It it takes us to Christ, to a king who is both a man and God. And it's because this king is man and God that only this king can approach the presence of the perfectly holy God. This song that was so crushing for David now becomes a beautiful song for us as we see that the king qualified to ascend God's hill and stand in God's place is a king, verse 10, of glory, a stunning point because the Lord himself can only approach himself, that only God can stand before God. So we're on the search for in the Bible story, a a king who is a man and a a king who is God. Well, it's not David, it's not Solomon. But as we get to the New Testament, we discover it is Christ. As at his baptism, the father announces, "This, this is my son, this is Messiah, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased, because he is walking, talking, living, breathing perfection. And by the way, the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ is not only that he never sins, but he never could sin. He is impeccable in his perfection. Let's go back to those fourfold qualifications. Clean hands, he never did anything wrong. A pure heart, devoted to the Father, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, not your will be done, but Not my will be done, but yours. He never swore deceitfully. Every time he spoke, it was truth and perfection. A king of grace and truth, on whose lips there was no deceit. Spurgeon puts it like this. Our Lord Jesus Christ could ascend into the hill of the Lord because his hands were clean, his heart was pure. And if by faith... We are conformed to his image that we will enter as well. And in terms of his entry, it was that first Palm Sunday as he ascended into Jerusalem. And on that first Palm Sunday, the gates were open to Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem to the hosannas and the praise of the people. But his ascent didn't stop there. For from that hill, he then ascended a second hill called Golgotha as he died on the cross to take away our guilt and shame that he might buy a people forgiven and purchased in his precious blood. But the ascent didn't stop there. 
because on that first Easter Sunday, he rose from the grave. But it didn't stop there, because on that first Sunday, as he met with his disciples in Acts 1, 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory. The ascent of Jesus Christ, the perfect King, into the presence of God, where He now stands interceding for us. Handel actually understood this in 1741. As he wrote Messiah, he moves from the resurrection uh, and the ascension, and immediately after we move from the resurrection to the ascension, if you know your Handel, like Bob Bouguet does, and like I do, um, Psalm 24 is then sung in a very dramatic uh, moment of who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. The application then, if you're not a Christian believer, is trust in this Christ. You can't ascend the hill. And if you dare to approach God, as we will have to on the day of judgment, we will face his eternal, never-ending judgments in what Jesus describes as the eternal torments of hell. That's what your pastor deserves, and that's what you deserve for your failure and your sin. But here is a king who is perfect in word and thought and deed, who takes our punishment and gives us his perfection. Lift up your heads. Lift up your heads to this approaching king, for he has died for you and has come to save you. Let me end by quoting Spurgeon. I was reading this last night, and I thought this is so amazing. I want to end uh, with this. As Spurgeon comments and applies this psalm to his congregation in Victorian London. Dear reader, It is possible that you're saying, I shall never enter into the heaven of God, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look to Christ then, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust in him, follow in his footsteps, and repose on his merits. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride triumphantly too if you trust in him. But how can I get the character described, you say? The Spirit of God will give you that. He will create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit, and all virtues are wrapped up in that. Faith stands by the fountain filled with blood, and as she washes therein clean hands and a pure heart and a holy soul and a truthful tongue will be given to you. Let's pray. So, Father, our prayer is one of great gratitude to Jesus who climbed the hill of Golgotha 
that we might climb the hill to your presence. Forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness and help us to follow him in faith and triumph as we lift up our heads, worshiping him and trusting him. And if there are any amongst us still blind to this great truth, Father, have mercy, open eyes and hearts that this King of glory might enter into hearts today and save. We ask it for Christ's name. Amen.